0: Good morning. Welcome to the Springs. My name is Alberto Lopez. I serve here as a campus minister with our awesome college ministry. It is a privilege to be with you guys this morning. First of all, shout out to the women because it was like super cold that night. I texted my wife and I'm like, how's it going? She's like, it's miserable, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. But it's amazing too, which was like so great. She told me so many great things from Miss Ellen's talk and the awesome breakout sessions. I wish I was there because it was, sounded fantastic. Uh, If you're new here, welcome out. We want to make this church your church. So in the seat back behind you, there's a connection card. If you take time to fill that out and turn it at the connection table, we want to shake your hand and get to know you. Uh, Before we move forward with our sermon, I believe in giving honor where honor is due. And February is Black History Month. And here at the Springs, we are committed to celebrating and honoring uh, Black History Month and the amazing contributions that people of African descent have made towards culture, politics, our nation, and the body of Christ. And so I sincerely believe that when we celebrate, it helps us be better stewards of the privileges that we've attained. And I firsthand have tasted from the amazing contributions that my black brothers and sisters have made possible for me, for this body of Christ, and for this awesome nation. And so uh, I love, absolutely love, that from the very first moment I walked into this church, this church has been about looking like the kingdom of God looking like heaven. And diversity uh, is something that we value, and we honor the people of God, so we celebrate Black History Month. Amen? Amen. Awesome. So today, we find ourselves in week two of our sermon series, Story of the Bible. Last week, Peter opened up this awesome series, uh, and I love what he said. He said, there's a lot of stories in the Bible, but we're going to be talking about the story of the Bible. Now, I don't know about you, But I grew up thinking that this book right here had a bunch of stories in it, which is true, that were completely unrelated to each other, and that if I found a story, I could somehow pull out some sort of moral principle that would make me a better person, okay? So if you grew up and and you did not have a Bible or grew up in church, I'm sure you've heard of Bible stories. Uh, There's some familiar ones in there, like a guy getting swallowed up by a whale, right? Jonah, it's like... How do I make sense of that? God will make me survive in a fish's belly. What do we do with that, you know? Uh, or like the story of, of Daniel in the lion's den. And here we have a guy who, who was in this lion's den. And if you don't know the context, you'll assume that if you have great faith, lions won't eat you. But that's not very practical because we don't encu- encounter lions very often, am I right? Or like stories like Peter walking on water. And so if we read them, we might assume that these are all a bunch of standalone stories that aren't related to each other. But here's what's so amazing about the Bible is that it is this intricate piece of literature that tells one big story about Jesus. And we believe that every chapter, every verse, every story plays a part in telling a bigger story. For example, do I have any Marvel Cinematic Universe fans in the room? All right, all right, this half of the room, I don't know what's going on over here. Uh, This is the way that I like to think about it. The other day, uh, Avengers Infinity War was released on Netflix, amazing movie. I was like, Morgan, we have to watch this movie. It's gonna change your life. She was like, okay, let's do it. Before I was going to hit play, I realized that my wife has never seen any of the movies, okay? And so if you don't understand why that's a big deal, here's why, is that in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Uh, Since 2008, the very first Marvel movie, Iron Man, was released, every single movie up until Avengers Infinity War plays a part in revealing this awesome plot line that builds up to this one big story. So one would say, oh, these are just a bunch of standalone movies. Iron Man is doing his thing. Captain America is doing his thing. We don't know what's going on with Ant-Man, but he's kind of cool. But that's not what's happening. Every single movie plays a part in telling this bigger story And this is where we get to this universal showdown in Infinity War. And so I made my wife watch this 40 minutes worth of YouTube video so she could get a rundown of what's going on because we didn't have enough time to watch 10 years worth of movies. And by the end of the movie, she was like, whoa, this is the greatest movie ever. And I had this proud husband moment and we high-fived. It was great. It was awesome. Likewise... From Genesis to Revelation, every single story, every single chapter of the Bible plays a part in unfolding the story, the story of God's plan to come to us, restore us, redeem us, rescue us from our sin, bring us back into relationship with him, eliminate all the evil and sin in the world, throw the devil into the lake of fire, usher in his kingdom onto this planet where we will rule and reign with him forever, amen. And so in the story of the Bible, this series, we're going to be looking at different plot points in the Bible that help us better understand this story. Last week, Pastor Peter opened up in Genesis chapter 1, where we're talking about the subject of creation. This week, we find ourselves in chapter 2, and we're going to dive deeper into creation. So in chapter 1, we have this broad view of creation, okay? It's important to remember that the genre of Genesis is historical narrative. So we believe that these are historical events that happened that are being told in a story-based form to a story-based culture. When we have that genre in mind, it helps us set the proper expectations on this book. So when we read Genesis, we can't demand answers from it that it was never intended to give, okay? So I'm a science major, graduated clinical lab science. I can't open up Genesis and demand answers for all the intricacies of the universe. That's not what the author's intending to do. He's trying to show us how the world was created, and more importantly, why the world was created. So when we have the genre in mind, it helps us set the proper expectations. I'm not going to open up the Chronicles of Narnia and say this is the worst cookbook ever. Okay, It's not a cookbook. It's a fantasy fiction. So Genesis, in chapter 1, we get this broad bird's-eye view. It kind of looks like this, this, this image I have right here of, which galaxy is this? All right, good job. This is the Milky Way galaxy. This is, this, is the uni- this is the galaxy where our little blueberry, somewhere in there, is located. So the Milky Way galaxy is huge. It is 120,000 light years across 1,000 light years thick, and astronomers estimate that there's probably over 400 billion stars in this galaxy alone. And God, the king of the almighty universe, in one moment spoke everything into existence. And this is the bird's eye view that we get in chapter one. When we open up chapter two, we're zooming into this universe to see our planet. And then we're zooming even deeper in to see what the world looks like that God created. So here's my big idea if you're taking notes. In order to fully understand the story of the Bible, we need to zoom in and take in the setting within the garden. So will you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? We are in Genesis chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 5. It says this, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made up to spring every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verses 10 to 14 describe some rivers that flowed in the garden. Let's skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. And every man said, yes and amen. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Verse 21 So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its flesh with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And brought her to the man. Then the man said, in the Pastor Peter translation, Whoa. Wow. Look at her. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. In order to fully understand the story of the Bible, we need to zoom in and take in the setting within the garden. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, Lord. Thank you that it is alive and active, God. Lord, I pray that your word would come alive in our hearts, God. Lord, that as we gather two or more, Lord, we know your presence is in the midst of us, God. Pray that you would open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts, God to have tunnel vision, Lord, to seek your face in this moment, God, that we may be transformed and renewed and refreshed to look more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When we zoom in and, and take in the setting within the garden, we see two things that I want to talk about. Number one, we see man and woman. And number two, we see the garden itself. So let's talk about man and woman. Genesis 2, verse 7 says this, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, what's interesting to notice here is that if we flip our Bibles or scroll up a little bit back to chapter 1, we see in the creation account a different name for God. In chapter 1, it says, In the beginning, God created. And then we go down to verse 3, it says, God said verse 6, God said, let there be light. Verse 9, God said, let there be waters. And as the creation account unfolds, we see the name God. Okay, pretty normal. In chapter 2, though, when we see this creation account, the author is using a different name for God. It says, the Lord God. Now, if we read this in English, we might miss out the significance, but the Hebrew name for God in chapter 1 is Elohim. Elohim means the creator, the almighty king of the universe. What an appropriate name for what we see God doing in chapter one. He's creating the whole universe. In chapter two, though, the narrator is using this name, the Lord God, which in Hebrew is Yahweh Elohim, which is a very personal name for God. So in chapter two, we see the almighty king of the universe create everything into existence, In chapter one. And then in chapter two, we see this almighty king of the universe get personal. And he steps into the world that he created. And one of the things that he does differently than what he did with the rest of creation is the way that he creates man. It says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. Other translations say, that, that Yahweh Elohim, our Lord God, stooped down and just gathered some dust and began to form it. The same way a, f- a potter grabs a bunch of clay and begins to form it and make a shape out of it. Yahweh Elohim, the God of the universe, stepped into his creation and formed man out of dust. And then the next verse is what sets apart man from every aspect of creation is that God breathed the breath of life into man. So if the Lord had just created this dust person, it would have just been a dust creature. But it wasn't until the Lord God breathed into this man that he formed that this person became a human being. Alive. Conscious. Uh, had every, every, a, a soul. Other, other translations say that the Lord God breathed a soul into him. Now, one interesting question that comes to mind is is why did the Lord use dust to form a man? I mean, he's, he's the king of the universe, access to all the resources in the world. He could have used gold. That'd been cool. Diamonds. Vibranium. A little, little Black Panther action right there. That would have been great. No, but the Lord God used dust. I believe one of the reasons he used dust was because it's such a humble, lowly substance. Nobody walks out of this room and say, "Wow, look how luscious this dust is. This, is." this is so quality. The Hebrew word there is soil." No one's like, "Man, this is awesome soil." And so what we see in this moment, it's not the substance that gives us value. It's the breath of God in that substance that gives us value. You are valuable. You have worth, you are set apart from creation, not because of your substance or what's inside of you, but because you're made in the image of God, and God breathed life into you, and he made you alive to be in relationship with him. So that means we we can't find worth and value in anything else. It won't complete you, and it won't satisfy you. I, I, I sincerely believe that, that it, it's impossible to find a sense of validation in, in other people. It'll never be enough. You're not going to find worth and value in being the best performer in the gym. You're not going to find worth and value in being the top performer at your job. Worth and value come solely from God making you in His image and breathing His life into you. And that's not something we can take credit for. I can't take credit for being made out of dust or soil. But I am God's child. And he made me in his image and gives us worth and gives us value. God's mode of creating us sets us apart from the world. And when he breathes his life into us, we become a living creature. And so God created us to be in relationship with him in this awesome world. Uh, he created us, last week Peter talked about in Genesis one twenty eight to be fruitful and to multiply, to literally live in this garden and extend the bounds of the garden to cover the entire earth. We were created to work, to labor, to enjoy God forever. This was man's purpose in the garden. God created us to be in relationship with Him, to enjoy Him forever in a sinless world. Now let's talk about the garden. Let's read Genesis 2, verses 8 to 16 again. And then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made up to spring every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15, the Lord God took this man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, you shall not eat, for in that day you shall surely die. So we know from the beginning of this chapter that the world was very good. I mean, God created everything. This was still a pre-fallen world. There was was no sin, no destruction, nothing that would ruin this world. And it was very good. And so the Lord God plants a garden in Eden. So a few questions come to mind. Uh, We know the world was very good. Because God said it, but, but what does the garden represent and what is in the garden? Now, like most garden names, uh, we can kind of assume what grows in the garden by thinking through hey, this, what is the name of this garden? For example, a, a rose garden, we would assume roses grow in the garden. Uh, a Japanese tea garden, Japanese tea. Uh, vegetable garden, yields vegetables. Now we know that this garden is named after the region it's planted in. But what does Eden mean? Eden comes from two Hebrew words, uh, Edna and Adanisha. Totally butchered that, but that's okay. And these Hebrew words mean pleasure and delight. So the garden was planted in an environment that consistently, 24-7, radiated, exuded pleasure and delight. Now, this is an awesome world to live in. Uh, I don't know about you, but at, at the end of a, of a really long day, it's like, I'm just, I'm just ready to go home because it, in that environment, I know that, you know, I'm done, okay? Pleasure, delight, turn the TV on, sit back and eat. It's awesome, okay? Well, this environment was that 24-7, There was no way of turning it off. In this sinless, perfect world, there was just nothing but joy, peace, pleasure, delight, everywhere. Now that's amazing. Me and my wife joke around like, God, just come back and get us right now so we can experience this 24-7 because you and I know that that's not the environment that we live in. It's almost the opposite of that. Uh, we're, we're so in tune with the brokenness of the world that, that, that we see it at our fingertips when we get on our phones. We see the brokenness of the world visually when we turn on the TV or even when you step foot outside and you see the interactions between God's created people and it's like, man, there's something fractured here. But that's not how this world was designed in the beginning. In fact, when you, we look at that word peace, shalom, it means that there was peace and order in the whole created universe, that everything was fine-tuned, working in tandem with each other for one specific purpose, to glorify God and to lift up his name. And this is the environment that man was set in. They were placed in this environment where God's perfect presence consumed the world and he placed them in a garden to work it and to keep it. Now, sometimes we think that the garden was the end game, all right, God places the man in the garden, and boom, that's it. That's not necessarily true. The garden was actually the starting point for building this world uh, that would glorify God forever. I mean, I sincerely believe that the garden would, would look like this world where there would be institutions and schools and businesses and jobs and people living in perfect unity because we're living in perfect unity with God and everything we do and everything we say lifts up one name and that's the name of Jesus. And there's nothing but peace and love and joy. And in this garden, we see that there's a couple trees. One of them, God says, is the tree of life. The other is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, although these trees are in the garden, I I don't believe that that this is what the story is about. I don't think that the story is about two trees. I think the story is about God. But the trees kind of gives us a reference point for where everything went wrong. Humans are given a choice of how they're going to build the world. And this is represented by the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God provided and defined good. Are humans going to trust God or are they going to seize autonomy and turn away from the giver of life? And in one moment, in chapter three, we're gonna unpack that next week. No spoiler alert, it's the world we live in now. Where humans seized autonomy and willfully disobeyed God. And in that one moment, the whole universe fractured. Peace with God was destroyed and sin tainted us and creation. So we know that, that, that in this garden was perfect unity, was joy, was delight, was pleasure. But let's talk about what's not in that garden, okay? Shame was not in that garden. Man and woman were naked and not ashamed. That's awesome. What else is not in that garden? Insecurity. Insecurity brokenness, fear, death. There was nothing in that garden that would bring about our destruction. There was nothing in that community that would make us shed a tear at night. There was nothing in that garden that would kill us or destroy us. Adam had complete dominion over all the plants and animals. He said he named all of them. This is why I have reason to believe that he was using 100% of his brain because I think he got pretty creative with some of these names. Platypus. Come on. Couldn't come up with that. This is the world that Adam was living in. He was living, I mean, with with lions and gorillas and all these things that, that were just subject to him. And everything was living in communion, glorifying God. And when the universe fractured because of sin and that order was removed, now instead of forming the environment, now instead of taking dominion and shaping the world we live in, it begins to shape us, it begins to c- consume us. Now that lion and gorilla is saying, man, you look tasty, I'm gonna eat you. Now instead of cultivating the communities that we live in, the communities and the environment are forming and shaping us. That's what sin does. There is no shame, there is no brokenness, there is no evil. And in Genesis chapter three, when when man and woman willfully disobey God, sin comes into the picture. So instead of reflecting the goodness of God in everything that we do, we now reflect our own image, our own broken image. We reflect the desires of the flesh. We reflect the the anger, the fear, the control, the brokenness, the insecurity. Instead of living in perfect communion with God, now we're separated from Him. And instead of glorifying Him and adoring and worshiping the Creator, we have love affairs with creation. It's not the way God designed us to live. And this is what we lost because of sin. Because we rebelled against God, we committed treason against him. And what did God say to Adam and Eve? When he said, do not eat from this fruit, or what will happen? You shall surely die. And in this moment, we see God's mercy revealed or he could have in that one moment completely removed terminated man in that moment his grace is revealed and that we don't die immediately but now our bodies are wearing away and now we're experiencing a slow tragic death and God because he is the, the 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 controller the king of the universe has every right to kill us off because we committed treason against him I mean, what happens when you commit treason in this country or in any other country? There's a death penalty followed. And when we committed treason against God, instead of immediately terminating us, we now experience this long death and spiritual separation from God. The original audience who, who would have read this would, would have been aware of this. We have reason to believe that, that Moses is the author of Genesis and that he's probably writing this narrative at some point in Israel's history when they're either under the bondage of Egyptian slavery or afflicted and suffering trying to enter the promised land. Either way, we know that they find themselves in a very broken world. So when they're probably reading the scripture and they're seeing how the universe was was created and designed and they're seeing that everything was very good, what rises up in their mind is this acute awareness that this is not the world that I'm living in. This is not my reality. I'm seeing my brothers and sisters murdered off. I'm experiencing the affliction of slavery. I'm seeing the brokenness all around me. And it was not very good. And some of us may be all too familiar with this. It might even be hard for you to imagine what a place of pleasure and delight looks like because you have no context for that. Because all you've ever experienced or seen has been brokenness, affliction, and despair. Why did the narrator write this story? Why is chapter two in the Bible I believe that when we get a glimpse of what creation looks like, we can have an understanding of the way we were intended to live and what God is bringing us back to. And that the Lord still extends his grace despite our sin. When we epically failed, the Lord did not leave us. I mean, it's funny because in in chapter three, they they go run away and hide, but how do you play hide and seek with God? He's everywhere, okay? You can't outrun him and you can't hide from him. And when we epically failed and disobeyed God, instead of us initiating reconciliation and running to the Lord and saying, man, I've messed things up, he comes to us. And in one moment where, where we should have been dealt with once and for all he ushers in a plan that will rescue us from our sin redeem us restore us and save us and in chapter three we see what's called the the proto-evangelion the very first gospel the very first prophetic promise that's given to eve that from your lineage is going to come one who's going to restore humanity and we know that that person is jesus And so from Genesis 3, moving forward, we see this plan moving forward of how God's going to restore and fix everything that we messed up that culminates in the life of Jesus and Him dying on the cross and rising above sin and death and bringing us back into communion with the Father. the very moment we messed everything up from chapter three of the Bible, the story is moving towards fixing what went wrong in the garden. And when we get this part of the story down, it helps us appreciate the story. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-five to 47 says this, "'Thus it is written, "'The first Adam became a living being.'" The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. This is Jesus. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As the man of dust, so also we are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven." Just as, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 19 say this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled, to us Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. The Lord still extends His grace to us despite our sin. He brings me back to the garden, and how does He do it? As a new creation. As a new creation. And so when I walk into the family of God, we share this in, in, um, in Victory Weekend and Establish, I'm not, I'm not escorting myself back into this garden. I'm not escorting myself into the house of God. I'm walking in with Jesus around my shoulder, robed in his righteousness, wearing his clothes and his accomplishments, not mine because the only worth and value that I have is being made in the image of God, him breathing his life to me, in me. And other than that, I have tragically, consistently, even this morning, continually rebel and sin against the creator of the universe. And so my, my, my material frame, my body, is, is going to just wither away from dust to dust. But this immaterial part of me, my soul, the breath of God, has to go somewhere. And the question is, if God intended for our, our soul, our spirit, to live on forever, where is it going to go? Is it going to go with God and spending eternity with him? Or is he going to go to a place of eternal destruction? Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear the man who can can kill the body. But I say to you, fear the man, fear God, who can kill both the body and the spirit, the soul in hell. And in the Lord's great grand love for us, where we kicked ourselves out of the garden, where we removed ourselves from this awesome place of pleasure, delight, joy, and peace, he's the one that steps into our lives to bring us back into communion with him. You see, Jesus lived his perfect life on earth the way that Adam and Eve and you guys should have lived in the garden, perfectly obeying the will of the Father. Advancing the kingdom of God with no reservation. Perfectly exuding joy, peace, and love. And never once sinning against us or the Father. And Jesus has every right to live in this garden, to live in this kingdom. Yet, He takes upon himself the death that I should have died immediately when I took a bite from that fruit and trespassed and rebelled against God. I should have immediately been hung on a cross. And Jesus, who never tasted the fruit of sin, became sin for us so that we could be the righteousness of God, so that he could make us a new creation so that he could bring us back into the family of God and we might become his children. Uh, This is is the story. This This is one awesome part in the story of the Bible. God getting back what was already his and God coming to this earth, Elohim, chapter one, becoming Yahweh Elohim, the personal God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, coming into this earth and bringing us back into relationship with the Father. So how does this change the way we live? Well, if we are a new creation, if we have placed our faith in the Lord, if we have given him our lives, and he is the king of our hearts, how then shall we live? As we were intended to live in the beginning. And we can do that because we're a new creation. God does not come into this world and save us and redeem us so that you can walk out of this sanctuary and live a very normal, basic life. He doesn't take upon the sin that is crushing you, that is defeating you, uh, that is destroying you so that you can keep living in a weak, destructive, broken life. He comes into this world to conquer the thing that conquered us so that he can take residence in our heart and we can become his new creation and live the way we were intended to live. As sons and daughters of God who glorify the king in all that we do, lifting up his name high and without reservation, advancing the kingdom of God, pushing the bounds of the garden into our families, into our homes, into our, our, our work, into whatever area, every, any space you occupy, we're bringing the kingdom of God, representing the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings. And we can only do this if we are a new creation. Because the old creation seeks to advance the desires of the flesh. But this new creation that God, this awesome tension of, of, of this is who God says I am, while at the same time, this is what I'm being grown into, being sanctified into, seeks the desires of the Spirit. man. The, 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 the flesh, the, the body that is weak, but the Spirit is is willing. Jesus brings me back. This is what he does for you. He conquers sin, shame, and the work of the flesh so that I can be brought back to union with God And live as though sin had never separated me from the Father. And I didn't do any of this. Jesus did. And this is why the gospel is good news, because it invades bad spaces. It invades bad news. You and I can enjoy relationship with God forever. So as we transition into into communion, I want to create a, a reflective moment and pray into this question with every eye closed and head bowed.